when he came out that door, he was just ashy white. And his eyes were just like vacant holes in his head. Welcome to the Adventure Deficit Podcast. We're here to promote lifelong learning through the context of adventure. Through our one-on-one interviews, we capture in-depth stories across a variety of subjects, emphasizing a new life lesson in every episode. We're on a mission to entertain, educate, and inspire you to embrace new challenges, reflect, push through fears, and get out there in search of your own adventures. We call it taking our medicine, and we invite you to join us for today's dose. Today's guest is John Osborne. John's a fellow Michigander. He's a successful trout angler who has authored two books entitled Fly Fisher's Guide to Michigan and Classic Michigan Flies, 16 Legendary Patterns. In addition uh, to John's love for the outdoors, he is a police officer who serves for a local department near the lake shore. Um, as always, John's going to be uh, giving us a little bit of background about himself before we transition into a rather sobering story, uh, one which involves lethal force. Uh, just as a heads up, if you do have young ears, you may want to censor uh, this episode. I just wanted to give you a forewarning. Um, but before I go too far into that, uh, I'd like to just uh, introduce John. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for setting aside uh, some time to join us. Uh, how you doing tonight? Doing well, Drew. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, well, you and I uh, did some preliminary work on the front end just to kind of uh, vet your story. Um, our audience is in for a real treat. Um, but uh, before we get into uh, your your sobering story, why don't we just uh, start by having you give some some brief details about your background. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, born and raised in West Michigan. Always joke around um, about the fact that I loved it so much, I just ended up staying here. Um, Great place to raise a family. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, I've seen enough of America to uh, have a pretty good taste of it, you know, through high school, college. Um, Not that there's not a lot of great parts of America, but I just always keep coming back to the native stomping grounds here. And um, yeah, just just enjoy the area for the hunting and fishing that it offers and for the good family life that it offers. Sure. Hey, talk to us a little bit about, uh, your early childhood. Um, maybe some of the, uh, some of the influences that helped shape your passion, um, regarding the outdoors. Um, can you, can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, definitely. So kind of a walking irony. Um, my parents were hippies. Um, and, um, <laughs> don't say that disrespectfully i mean i love my parents and we have a great relationship but uh they came out of the you know 60s and 70s and um i was born in the 70s um but i was just born loving pioneer stuff which also included firearms and they weren't such a big fan of that and uh (laughs) so my brother and i would just fashion you know revolvers out of sticks and and rifles out of broken shovels and stuff like that but they weren't digging that at all um they were very good about taking us hiking and um fishing but guns were kind of off limits um but you know they were politically liberal and socially liberal but they were also liberal in their parenting so they they were really good about just like cutting me loose allowing me to just uh, spend time outside, you know, not helicopter parents, not hovering over my shoulder, asking what I was doing all the time. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things that uh, 
I'm really, I'm really grateful for that portion of it because I got to do a lot of really cool stuff without being supervised and, uh, probably some of the time I should have been supervised, but (laughs) I'm still here. So yeah, there's something to be said about, um, about a, a set of parents who uh, appreciate the fact that uh, there are threats and there are consequences, um, but they measure those threats and consequences and allow their their child to be exposed to some of the world. Um, yeah, I think definitely. That's something that my wife and I even struggle with. Just you know, how much do we how much do we we interject? Um, they're going to scrape their knee. They're going to get lost. They're going to have uh, opportunities to where they're going to need to use. Um, you know, some, some of their own, uh, skills and tool sets to, uh, to overcome. And those don't get flexed unless they get to practice. Yeah. I love that. That's totally true. And I mean, I, I look back on the stuff that my parents would allow me to do, um, even as early as, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old and, uh, you know, camping out for three, five, seven days at a time, just, you know, just matches and a knife and, um, they just cut me loose and, and, uh, we learned what it was like to be cold, what it was like to be hungry, what it was like to fall through the ice, um, all that kind of stuff that, you know, it's either walk up to the nearest farmhouse and call for help or make it happen on your own. So, um, a lot of the independence that I guess I enjoy now is a direct result of that. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's a whole new level. That's, uh, I mean, seven <laughs> days that's yeah. They, uh, they, they put their, their trust in you. For sure. Hell so yeah. you mentioned, uh, John, real quick, you mentioned a brother. Uh, so two two uh, kids? Yeah, so actually um, two brothers, so three kids. Okay, so you're um, one of three. One, my, my middle brother, my uh, the brother that's just under me, Joel, um, he's two and a half years younger than me. So we, we grew up close together. Um, my brother that followed after that, Kent, um, he's eight years younger than me. So I was well, you know, well into high school by the time, you know, he was in elementary school so okay talk a little bit about school if you would um where where did you guys go to elementary yeah so uh right down the street from our house lakeview elementary it's not even there anymore oh really Um, yeah yeah they leveled it like a lot of places like that but uh my parents always wanted to have a house that was close enough that we could walk to school um so that was nice um yeah pretty uh i don't want to say sheltered existence but um not a whole lot of things that I had to work through as a kid. You know, I didn't work through parents who were divorced or, um, you know, disabilities or any, anything that you can think of. I mean, it was a pretty, I guess, easy childhood. Um, and I think when you have a childhood like that, you almost go looking for conflict because you want something to wrestle with. And so that's where the whole like, hey, let's go out in the woods and uh, and try to live off the land for seven days without, you know, bringing anything but water or not even that. Um, mm. I think I think you make your struggles. I think there's truth to that. <clears throat> I think on some level that never ends. It's what we're all doing when we, you know, when we load up the truck and head out or when we jump on a two wheeler and twist the throttle. We're we're cha- we're chasing after something. Yep. I think it's in our, it's our DNA to like, um, yeah, to just see what we're made of and, uh, see how we would deal with adversity. Yeah. Um, sometimes we get in over our heads that way, but. Yep. Um, do you play any sports? Yeah, that's, that's a funny question because, um, if you threw me a ball right now, 
you would be amazed at how I couldn't catch it. <laughs> I don't believe that. Oh man, it, I, it's gotten better with the, the year over the years. But as an adolescent, people were like, "Dude, do not play sports." <laughs> um, but it worked out well because um, I saw sports as just being uh, something that would get in the way of me hunting and fishing, and um, that was my number one goal. I didn't want anything to get in the way of it at all, and that included any manner of sport. So I stayed away from that, and you know. My parents finally said, it's either you got to join a sport or get a job. And I was like, well, a job means uh, more fishing lures and more shotgun shells. So sure, I'll get a job. Okay. So I got a job. Um, Yeah. But nothing getting in the way of that. Okay. So this was a very clearly defined road for you. You knew that this was a a passion that was going to be, you were in it for the long haul at an early age, so to speak. Yeah. I don't think I knew that back then, but it's carried through, you know, 40 odd years of you know, doing this and not ever like letting up on the gas pedal either. I mean, the only thing that's gotten in the way of it, um, which has been my own choice has been getting married and having kids. But, um, I weren't married and have, uh, having had kids, I would be the scourge of the outdoors right now. Yeah. 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 Um, nothing holding you back. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, Talk uh, a little bit about that before we make make a transition here. Um, so you mentioned uh, you're a husband, you're a father, and uh, being a family man um, who's also got to uh, to weigh a passion for the outdoors and uh, dutifully fulfilling his role as dad and husband. Uh, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, that's a that can be a tough line, you know, because you want to. You still want to go out and get some peace and quiet for yourself, but at the same time, you realize you want to get your kids involved. And strangely enough, uh, my own kids are more into sports than they are into hunting or fishing, which is like that's how that stuff goes. And then you just like embrace your kids for what they like. Um, but I do try to expose them to, um, you know, hunting and fishing. I went turkey hunting with my son for the first time this year. Um, we've had some great fishing experiences. Um, so I think early exposure is important. Um, they're not always going to grab onto it, and you can't clone yourself. So you got to just be okay with that. Um, but I love them for who they are and what they like to do, and um, so I'm, I want to support them in that, just like my parents supported me in that. You know, they didn't get it. My parents didn't really understand what I was doing, and sometimes when my kids are like, "All I want to do is play basketball or whatever," I'm like, uh, "I don't get it, but I'll come watch and I'll cheer you on." <laughs> Yep. Sometimes you got to take that big gulp and be the vulnerable dad who has no idea what he's doing. Oh yeah. That's a lot of times. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, that's familiar space. And it's, I think it's, I shouldn't say it's familiar space. It's becoming more familiar space. Um, so I have a seven year old and that's, you know, we're getting there. So. Yeah. And I think ultimately, you know, I mean, all your kids want from you is, you know, quality time spent with them. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's, I don't think that they're looking to dad to be like, Oh, I just want to do everything dad did. They just want to know that dad's there for whatever you're going to do. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. All right. So you also, I mentioned earlier, you're an author. Um, what, what gives, how'd you get into, um, writing? Yeah, I guess, uh, the old catchphrase, organically right that that gets thrown around a lot these days um but you know i think that no matter what your passion is um 
you can push it down in so many ways it's going to pop out some other way you know if that's what you if that's what is your gig it's just going to happen so um, my mom was a librarian growing up and so reading was obviously really important to her it was really important to my dad um, they always read to us as kids and I remember my dad reading you know Jack London and you know a lot of those kind of stories to us as kids but then when we started getting out on our own and stuff that reading just like it continued you know and um to this day I'm just like a voracious reader just I just enjoy it it's it's calming it's peaceful to me but I think writing comes out of that I think the more that you read um the more that you probably want to express yourself in those same ways um so yeah that's that's what happened I I in 2006 I just kind of responded to a thing American Angler was doing and they published it I was like wow huh uh, maybe I can do this and then I like tried like 10 more times with different magazines and I was like wow maybe I can't do this and uh you know you got to be okay with with getting turned down and stuff like that and then that just gets less and less with time hopefully um but I had some really good mentors too um some really good editors that took me under their wing and spent some time with me um you know took me for tours of the publishing company and things like that and really just said hey listen um this is not very good as it stands but i see potential in it and i think we can make it good you just need to be willing to be open to critique and that kind of stuff so that's, that's how i have that's really cool so um did was was part of the game plan ever to write for a career or did you always know police work was part of that that landscape i just think you know right now kind of like my buddy that makes um he makes bamboo fly rods oh cool he's been very very staunch about um i don't want to do this for money um i'm always up for trading i'm always up for doing it for with as a gift you know but i don't want to make like a job out of it because then it becomes then i don't love it yeah uh, i'm pretty careful about not making writing a job because now when i go outside i see something that kind of sparks my interest i'm like sweet i can write about that but it's on my own time and nobody's telling me if you don't get this done by such and such a time, um, we're not going to have groceries or we're not going to have gas in the vehicles or something like that. So I do it more as like a, um, a side job, but also a passion that I'm able to just kind of pick away at my own leisure. Yeah, I get that. That's cool. Um, well, I haven't, uh, I haven't had the pleasure of reading through those yet, but I intend to, uh, and just based on, um, some of the articles that I've put eyes on online, I'm intrigued. Uh, I really like, I like your style. I like your prose and I love, uh, I mean, it's hard to not, um, dig in when there's a fellow angler who's talking about, you know, local streams. So, um, I'm looking forward to getting into some of that. Um, real quick, I'm sorry, I missed this portion, but, uh, I want you to inform the listeners, uh, on how you got, uh, into the policing world. Yeah, into the policing world. So you remember that, uh, see, so, you know, chips came out they did, they re released like that, um, movie of it, but you remember the like late seventies version of chips. Yeah. Um, with the, with the yeah. really, um, it's yeah i can hear the organ playing dun, dun, yes. Dun, dun. yep yes yeah yeah, yeah. That, that funky bass that like rich chocolatey bass in the background yeah <laughs> yep yeah so my brother and i just used to sit there glued to the tv when that was on <laughs> and um 
I think that was probably like the early exposure, you know, it was like, Oh yeah. Who doesn't want to be a motorcycle cop? You know, like that'd be cool. Um, but then, you know, junior high comes and high school comes and then you got to start really actually making decisions about what you're going to do. And it's like, yeah, what the heck police work. That sounds good. But I knew from certainly from high school on that, um, I wanted to be a cop, but only so that I could be on a tactical team. So never was on a football team. People always said you should play football. Didn't play football, but I was like, my football team can be a tactical team, you know? And so it was like, yeah, you got to be a cop to be on a tactical team. So let's jump through that hoop first, then try out for the tactical team. And then, you know, that okay. turned out to be a, a good thing for me. Okay. So <laughs> department work was a means to the, to an end, really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's where my passion within the job lies, I guess. Okay. And currently you are serving as a department officer, but you're also part of that division's tactical team? Correct. Okay. Okay. And are you at liberty to to divulge, or should we leave that uh, a bit anonymous? What part? Uh, which, what, what's the name of your tactical team? Oh, yeah. So it's the... the the acronym is SET, but it's Special Enforcement Team. Yeah, so, like, it goes by SWAT, SET, ERT, you know, um, all kinds of different abbreviations for the same thing. But what it comes down to is just high-risk response, um, special weapons and tactics, whatever you want to call it, you know. Okay. Um, you're loading up uh, riot gear, heavy heavy equipment, uh, body armor, uh, armored Hummers, that type of thing. Am I yeah, am I on it, the right line there? Yeah, um, riot gear is not really our thing. Um, it's more, um, you know, hostage rescue, barricaded gunmen, um, high risk search warrants, um, anything that you have. Like if you had um, a shooting where you think that the suspects hold up in the house or something like that, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's really what we do. Okay. Uh, well, John, that gives uh, that gives us a good idea as to who we're talking to, and I really appreciate you uh, filling us in a little bit. Um, it's a good segue uh, to the second portion of our episode together, uh, and this is where things get, uh, like I said earlier, a bit sobering. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, just an overall uh, portion of what you're going to be sharing with us and then, uh, take it from the top. I'm going to kind of dial down and let you run with the story. Um, but, uh, explain to us what we're about to hear. Yeah. So quick disclaimer on that. Um, if I get too technical or if I say something that you don't think someone's going to understand or you don't understand, just stop me and ask me. Um, because sometimes I get, um, into the weeds a little bit and, and just let me know. Um, but yeah, uh, a couple of years ago, um, a buddy and I responded to um, a hostage situation. Um, I don't want to give away everything about it, but um, the suspect had uh, murdered somebody north of town and had shot another person um, and was, at the time that we, re- we responded, uh, holding his, his then wife um, hostage at gunpoint. And so the story that I'm going to tell you is just kind of our experience with that um, and just kind of what followed afterward. And, you know, when you say the words adventure story, um, 
I think the gut reaction a lot of times is like, yeah, you're going, you know, whitewater rafting or you're going on some epic mountain biking trip or something like that. That's not the course. It's um, maybe a little darker, but I think that there's redemption in it. And I think that um, definitely lessons learned in it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and take us from the top? Um, how did, uh, how did this story build and, and, what uh what is the setting that we're we're getting into here yeah so i'll I'll first say that um joe um my buddy uh who responded to this with me is really the star of the show on the whole thing um it's it's our story but it's he's kind of the hero of the whole thing okay um but on april 22 2018 um just regular spring morning you know we started our our briefing at seven o'clock in the morning, like always, and um, kind of a chilly day that's going to warm into the fifties, but just normal April morning. Um, I got up before sunrise, did my regular five mile run, knocked out some push-ups and some pull-ups and then just went into work, you know, and um, in police work, I think you always know that something could happen, um, but it's always in the back of your mind, but you're, if you're living on the edge all the time, you're going to be tired all the time. So, you know, you're not keyed up the entire time. Um, so it's third in a string of, um, 12 hour weekend shifts, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday is kind of the day where you're just like, Oh, you know, maybe we have breakfast together. We'll do some training together. You know, hopefully not just like run ourselves ragged that day. Cause sure. we've already been working, you know? Um, so we're sitting in briefing and, uh, we're talking about what we were going to do and about 7 45 we started hearing some chatter on the radio about that shooting that i said that was north of us and there's a lot of shootings that happen that people never hear about you know and it's like yeah somebody gets shot at or a house gets shot up um or a car gets shot at or something like that but um it just never makes the news you know so you're listening but you're not listening like you're not thinking like whoa we got to jump up right now um but as we listened closer, it just started progressing into something that was a lot, that had a lot more gravity to it. Um, so we heard the guy had been murdered and that um, another gal in the house had been, you know, winged in the shoulder, I think, um, by this suspect. And for privacy sake, just to let you know, I'm going to, I'm going to refer to Joe as just Joe and I'm going to refer to the hostage taker as suspect. And, um, Okay. His wife as the hostage. Okay. okay. Names for that just to keep things private. So um, then we heard that that suspect was actually, um, he had taken his wife at gunpoint up to this house north of us and had made her watch him kill this mutual friend of hers. Um, he just came up to the door, knocked on the door, dude answers the door, he smokes him right in the face. Whoa. And then behind him is this is this female and he shoots at her too and, and wounds her but doesn't kill her and you you pick all this up off of the radio chatter yeah yeah we some of this stuff we, we started picking up later and you know it, it was kind of a weird like timeline because it wasn't all like sequential it was kind of like you hear 15 minutes later you figure something else out and you know then an hour later you figure another thing out and yeah it's just yeah, that's how it came together yeah so then the um, female that was behind him, um, she he shot at her as well and, and did not kill her. He just injured her. And then um, 
they then loaded up into the car suspect and hostage loaded back up into the car and um on the way home so they had a trailer north north of town and that's where they were headed and dispatch told us um that's possibly where they were headed they didn't know at the time okay and so there was a bol be on the lookout for this vehicle um possibly heading south and um okay by the time we started looking for it they had already reached the trailer okay when you say you have started looking for it um where i i still have you guys at a pancake breakfast in my mind tell me a little (laughs) bit about that yeah so when i say we i'm talking in the collective we like i was talking about all the officers in the area so not just our department but the sheriff's department everything like that we were still sitting at the would-be pancake breakfast at that time okay i got you officers were deputies were looking for this vehicle okay and that's called a bol be on the lookout yeah yep got it yeah so now things were getting really real and we're starting to listen um very carefully just tuned into the radio and um, watching things and, and we could tell that the whole situation was just the wheels were falling off you know um this was a unique situation for several reasons but one being um it was the first time that we ever heard um this system that they had in place called smart 911 where um a victim can actually text dispatch instead of calling dispatch so if there's you know this would be the perfect scenario like you can't talk at the time but you got a phone in front of you and you're able to text so she started out victim hostage started out by texting her mom who then texted dispatch eventually they just bypassed mom and went straight with hostage and so really the majority i'm trying to think if there was no there was no audio it was all over text and there's just an electronic prompter that will translate the the text into audio or what are you no, the are you reading? actually saying it okay so the dispatcher's reading it yeah she's reading it and basically she's the voice for the victim at okay. that point okay right but I, I had never heard that in reality before but i'd heard about it um and we were kind of like wow this is weird um but hostage starts texting her mom like i said and um then what ended up happening was um they're giving us these prompts. They're a little bit delayed, but hostage cannot get away from her husband. He's got a gun all the time, either to her head. At one point he took a shower and he was switching hands with the gun. He's standing in the shower and he's making her sit on the toilet next to him. Um, but he is not letting her leave. No way, no how. Um, so Joe and I, um, at, at some point we said, okay, we want to go help, even though it's not in our city and our supervisor um great guy named scott um he he was like yeah go so we ran downstairs threw our stuff in the humvee um which is armored by the way and um jumped in that and started driving out there now where this is happening is about you know 20 minutes 15 minutes from where we're at um, but we're monitoring it the whole time um does that make sense is that are you following there okay so driving that Humvee, um, most people know what a Humvee looks like, um, but these armored versions of them, they're very, very heavy. Um, I think they weigh around 10,000 pounds. 
Wow. And they're they're really only rated to go like 50 miles an hour tops. Okay. So, I mean, you're, you're a slug. Yeah, 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 it is. But we had this thing pegged at 80 plus. I mean, the speedometer is just buried. Sirens going, the engine's so loud. Um, we're talking about what we're going to do on the way there, but we're having to scream at each other to hear. Um, it literally felt like, you know, I was driving it, so it literally felt like a battleship on roller skates, you know. I mean, you're just slopping down the highway, and um, stopping is not a very good option. Wow. Uh, or an easy option. But we hit every every light, um, save one of them, green, and we were there in, boy, I want to say just over 10 minutes. Wow. So, so um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, at this point, I just want to, I just want to, what had transpired uh, during the the ten minutes that you were in route? Yeah, we're hearing all this stuff go down, and and at the same time, we're prepping for um, what we're going to do when we get there. So, a, this is not our jurisdiction, so we don't call the shots on it. Okay. Um, B, we've trained in this enough to know exactly what we want to do, but we need to make sure that we don't step on any toes. Okay. Um, but also keeping the overall mission in mind, you know, which is saving a human life. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, so we're, we're listening to all that. And there was kind of a comedy of errors that happened on the way there. Um, Joe was trying to charge his rifle. We both had rifles on, and um, he's getting his helmet on and stuff, and he gets a double feet, which is like – in this case, two bullets trying to go into the chamber at the same time. It's not going to work. He clears it, goes to charge it again, another double feed. Oh, no. Looks at me, kind of mouth wide open, and we're like, what the heck? And finally, um, I said, try a new magazine, grabbed a different magazine, and it was the magazine all along. Went in fine after that. Okay. Um, so that was just kind of like, oof. I said, take my rifle. And he, he was like, no, no, I want to make this one work. <laughs> Put in a new magazine that it did. Um, we get to the trailer park and it's just like this labyrinth of roads. I mean, some trailer parts are medium size. Some of them are huge. This one is enormous. Um, it's just like, you know, so many roads and so many dead ends and so many, you know, different sections of it. But um, we, we found it really, really quickly providentially you know i mean it was just one of those things that like we were right on it um we we linked up with the sergeant and uh talked to him and he was like listen you guys do this all the time you go ahead and do what you're gonna do um it's your vehicle so joe got up in the turret um where you would normally see um you know a guy like say in the military you would see a guy on like a like a twin 50 or something like that you know um rotates 360 degrees it's on ball bearings it it's armored up top there and stuff like that so um it's a pretty good platform um at that same time we were going to get a better view of this trailer and we wanted to see the side door and the front door at the same time in case this guy came out um as we were kind of prepping there they said that he had recently come out to let his dog out um, hostage still inside he he came out they gave him commands he didn't listen to it um, but when he turned around they saw that he had the pistol stuck in his waistband went back inside um, no opportunity it was just quick as that you know he was in the door right away um, had she escaped at that time 
you would then be reduced to a barricaded gunman. Um, you've got hostage out, nobody else inside there. Totally different response at that time. Different because, story. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're putting, you know, as far as like, um, as far as how we're prioritizing things, we're putting hostage first, innocence second under that, police under that, and then suspect under that. And you don't ever flip-flop those things. Okay, that's built into your training. Yeah, that is like that is like the cornerstone of policing, like modern-day policing. Interesting. So, yeah, if somebody's inside there and it's just them themselves, and they're like, I'm not going to come out, you know, I'll kill anybody that comes in there, we're, then we'll just be like, no, we're not coming in, that's fine. You know, I mean, why push that? Why get yourself into a gunfight for no no good reason? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's if you have some good. Yeah, that's interesting. Just as a, I mean, somebody who's on the outside, I, I have to believe that you have mantras built in, and your training is is such that you've got that mantra on autopilot, and that rolls through your head with uh, that's that's yeah, just for lack of a better word, it's automatic. You you have no uh, you, you have no recall going on. It's just part of your your moving forward. Um, yeah, walk walk which, through, which is, go ahead. yeah walk through that one more time so the the hierarchy is from top to bottom right so hostage always first innocent parties after that and there was nobody outside nobody around um so we didn't have innocent parties to worry about but um this couple did have a five-year-old kid um were he inside there he'd be another hostage potentially or he'd be an innocent innocent party but um and then the police far down below both of those and then below that would be your hostage taker, your suspect. Sure. Okay. Um, and I, I've been at this long enough to have seen the transition between like when I first started, it was like none of that stuff came into play. You know, it was just like, well, sure, we're going in. We're the we're the SWAT team. You know, I mean, that's that's what we're going to do. And it's like after a while, um, things transform, and you're you're able to take a good look at it and be like, really, do we need to do that? Yeah. Um, and then when you say no, then it's time to revise how you go about doing things. Sure. Okay. So in this particular case, and yeah, in this particular case that we, you know, he had, he had gone back in, he obviously had the gun on him. Um, hostage is still inside. She's still texting dispatch. We, we know this. Um, she, she texted dispatch, um, said he's flipping out. Um, there's a bullet in the gun, uh, safety's off. Um, he's got it pointed at me. He says he's going to kill me. We later found out um, that he had made her call their five-year-old and say goodbye, um, the, the five-year-old that they shared between the two of them. Um, so this was getting, you know, you knew he was getting serious at this point. Um, they came, as we were going to get that position on the side door and the front door, uh, we had just pulled around the corner, and there he was, like, he is outside the side door holding her pistol to the temple um very obviously i mean like the sun was streaming in from the east side through this open carport and you could tell right away that it was a gun i mean it wasn't like oh is this a wallet is this a cell phone no it's none of those things and i've been there where it's hard to tell this was not hard to tell at all you could pretty much read the serial number on the gun um her her head was partially in front of his um her hair was blowing in front of his face so obscuring it um and it, this was just one of those 
situations where hostage rescue, hostage rescue 101 is like headshot only on these things because shoot an arm, try to shoot the gun out, um, center mass, chest shot, any of these things, hostage can get killed yet, police can get killed yet, um, innocent bystanders can get killed yet. Um, he, he has two options, it's either to drop the gun and completely give up or continue what he's doing and then lethal force has to be authorized at that point. You know, I mean, it just is. You know this is a do or die situation. Without a doubt. I mean, it is it is certainly that, and to not act on that would be negligent on our part. Yeah. Um, and we're not about to watch this this lady just get killed right in front of us. I mean, he's already said he's going to, and he's whispering in her ear at this point, like, say goodbye, and um, it's coming soon, get ready, get ready, that kind of stuff. You find um, all this out after the fact. Right. She... she let us in on this later. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, this was, we wondered for a while too what she was thinking looking out at us. <laughs> Her quote was kind of funny. She said, I sure hope these efforts can shoot. Wow. That was, that was what she told the police later in a subsequent interview. Wow. That's so, so heavy. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so this is all going on um, just just over 80 feet from us away. And we get out. Uh, I get out. We, uh, we stop the, the Humvee, and we're getting ready to take the shot. Joe's up top. I come around the front of the, um, the Humvee, take up a, a platform on the, um, in front of the grill, and then something's not right. I can tell something's not right. Joe can tell something's not right. And I realize that that Humvee's only got reverse neutral and drive. It doesn't have a park. And I know that. But I had forgotten to set that parking brake. And the thing started, it was just rolling forward ever so slowly, but enough rolling forward that the shot just was like impossible. It wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. You could tell it wasn't right. So I come off the hood, go back into the Humvee, crank up the emergency brake, and the thing rocks to a stop go back out, set up the rifle platform, safety off, start taking slack off the trigger. Right at that same time, and we had targeted the same spot, Joe takes a shot. And when he takes a shot, um, hostage taker falls, falls behind a car, and we can't see him anymore. So I have 100% faith in his shooting, no doubt, but you just never know, you know I mean? Ballistics are a weird thing. Um, hostage is still right there. Hostage taker's out of sight. And if you keep those safety priorities in mind, who's first on the list, we still have hostage there in harm's way. So I yell, moving, moving, moving. I sprint from the Humvee toward the hostage taker. And I come around the side and I'm ready to deliver more, more shots, but Joe's shot has been very effective. He's down. We get the, the hostage taker out of there. I'm sorry, the hostage out of there and um, situation over. Whoa. So hostage never moved an inch. No, she never even budged. She had, you know, 62 grains of lead whizzing by at 3,000 feet per second inches from her face, you know. Whoa. 
so the effers could shoot. Yes, right, right. At least one of them. <laughs> yeah. That is. Um, I don't think I don't think it's right to not uh, to to discount the fact that you guys took a human life. Um, it's also I'm wrestling with this because I'm going. You guys are heroes. Um, talk about that a little bit the polarizing difference between those two emotions so closely butted up to one another literally at one point and to use your words inches from each other yeah so explain to me i guess clarify what what you're asking talk to me a little bit about the fact that so i'm 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 kind of going wow on the one hand you guys you guys just killed a bad guy like awesome unbelievable story on the other hand you guys just killed a bad guy <laughs> terribly sad terribly tragic all the thoughts that go through your head what i what if what if what if what if do you wrestle with those type of thoughts or or is there just this point of certainty where you can rest assured everything that you did was justified was necessary and there was no other way and the way that you uh, before i before i have you answer that the way that you built your story would not lead me to believe that you had to second guess what you did it sounds very much like you guys were justified in doing what you did and in that it couldn't have gone down any other way but i just know the fact that uh the stakes were so high um being that human life was involved um there's got to be this point where there's tension back and forth between being a hero and having to have taken a life or or no is there not yeah yeah you clarified that well so let me just back up a minute um first thing we'll, we'll branch off on a couple of different um, side streets here but um sure when we came around that corner and we saw him standing there you got to know that um we had seen this situation so many times on paper um, you know, live live rounds on paper, um, training rounds in um, rehearse situations where you actually have real people, but training training bullets. Um, it is like the bread and butter of a tactical team to train for this kind of thing. Um, but still, when we came around that corner, it was like, holy balls, are you seeing this? I'm seeing this. I can't believe we're seeing this. It's like, it's everything that you knew you were going to see and that you've been training for for two decades. And still, you're like questioning whether you're really seeing this. Hmm. Because it, it, even though you train for that all the time, it's um, it doesn't happen very much that way. Yeah. Um, I've, I've had a... So I... I'm not going to get us too far off the rails, but I, I understand what you're saying. I had an interview with an individual who was talking about war. It was the first time he had ever seen combat, and he explained the very a very similar sensation in the fact that he had an encounter with the enemy, and it was all of his training came to mind, but it was it felt really, really strange that it was all coming to real life in front of him. Yeah. Is it is it similar to that? I would say so, and... Um... You know, we'll, we'll go into the the aftermath of the whole thing too. But um, you know, after some extensive counseling um, for both of us, and Joe kind of paved the way on this. I mean, he did a just an awesome job on just blowing down the walls of like 
cops don't need this kind of thing and you know we're 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 better than this and you know we gotta just gotta be strong and suck it up and all that kind of stuff but um the counselor said you know that guy we we had described to him you know what he looked like and and when he came out that door he was just ashy white and um his eyes were just like vacant holes in his head so um that counselor had said you know based on what you described um the the ashy white skin and the the holes in in his eyes the vacant holes um where his eyes should have been that guy was dead when he walked out the door and that was nothing that we did i mean he had already made the decision in his mind he was just you know at that point just emotionally dead to the whole situation and it, and it showed on his face so um yeah, so it, it was kind of a sobering deal, like when we when we saw what we semi expected to see, but still were kind of amazed by it. Um, okay, go ahead. So you had you had talked about like regrets and that kind of stuff. In in terms of legality, um, there is no more black and white situation in police work hands down i mean it is just like like i said before i mean there's no questioning what needs to be done um but at the same time you're right you just took a human life and you can look at it in one way you saved a human life you can look at it another way in that you know mom and dad don't have a kid brother doesn't have a brother um five-year-old kid doesn't have a dad anymore and that's pretty tragic um whether he made that decision for himself or not um you were part and parcel to um assisting him on that yeah yeah you had asked about the guilt part of it too and, and the second guessing um joe went through all the obvious um since he was the trigger man he went through all the obvious things that you would you would guess um you know, just questioning and, and, you know, anger, remorse, all that kind of stuff. And like I said, he just did an awesome job working through that therapy wise. And we did a lot of just sessions with each other or two, where it was just like pounding out stairs or whatever it happened to be. Um, I had this very odd thing that I didn't, re- didn't expect either, um, kind of a reverse survivor skill in watching him go through that and realizing if I hadn't neglected to set the emergency break, um, I would have been on that trigger a lot quicker and I could have shared some, some of that burden with him and, uh, you know, just kind of kicking myself for, man, you knew that, you know, you knew that that was going to happen, but fog of war, you know, and, and you just lose some of that kind of stuff. Um, so it is what it is, you know, but I do think about it all the time. Wow. Uh, I'm really, I'm really impressed by the fact that, um, that you and Joe were so proactive in uh, in the mental care piece, the aftermath, the debriefing, the professional sessions. Um, what led to that? Man, a lot of things, I think. Um, grace of God, um, you know, Joe was, Joe was at that same time going through, um, his mom had leukemia, um, his dad had just recently um, gone into a care center for Alzheimer's and his parents were not old at the time. Um, so he had a lot of other things 
going on, but we had been working out together for, for months. I mean, maybe years at that point. Um, so we, we, we were both aware of that, um, and had been talking about that. So he already had some counseling in place. Um, but I just think, you know, it just comes down to, you know, everything comes together. God's got a plan. And, you know, this has just really, um, as far as our department goes, we were able to give a lot of debriefings and, and just say like, hey, listen, it's okay to go to counseling. It's okay to like cry about this. It's okay to um, say that you feel weak at you know a certain time or you're feeling regret or anger or whatever it happens to be. Um, you don't need to just suck it up. Um, you don't need to just drink it up, even though we, we tried a little bit. Yeah, um, I'm sure, I'm sure. But yeah, I think, I think that, you know, and, and also we were just surrounded by um, just an amazing group of people, you know, I mean, our spouses were really good about it. Um, the guys on the team were really good about it. Uh, some of our mentors who had been on the team before were really good about it. And then just people just came out of the woodwork that we didn't even expect. Um, that, uh, that book that I told you about touching the dragon, one of the guys on the team bought that for us. And that was, that was pretty integral. Um, for us, we reread that several different times and kind of went on the road with this whole thing and just, uh, set up a presentation and just kind of give it all over the place now. So it's, it's good for, it's good for people to hear it, but it's probably even better for us to tell it. Yeah. Wow. Well, good on you for, for taking what's available and for, like I said, being proactive in your mental health, uh, after something that's, um, yeah, so heavy. Um, I wonder if perhaps just with the advent of technology and the, in the rate at which we can share information with one another, if the fact that the least likely, in my opinion, one of the least likely subgroups to take advantage of something that would be, um, perhaps, uh, stigmatized as weak or, um, you know, uh, below or beneath or unnecessary, um, something like mental health care would be, uh, would be charged after. I wonder if that's a result of, you know, some of the, some of the quick information that you all have access to some of the, you know, uh, some of the podcasts that are available, some of the, the YouTube videos, uh, just the sharing of information and, and the quick access by which we can all consume information, puts really good uh content in front of really unlikely people groups do you think there's any truth truth to that yeah i think there is i think i think that it uh, has the i think it has the potential to go both ways though because i think there's also a lot of jumping to conclusions that people do because they're so quick to get things out there and they don't have maybe all the facts all the time mm-hmm. so i think it works both ways um i think that we are able to share and, and have a community um, of people that's able to just, you know, scatter stuff around like crazy, but, um, there's junk out there too. Oh yeah. 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 Well, cool. I'm really glad to hear that you guys took advantage of some of that. And, uh, I I would like to know more or less, what have you done in the time you said this took place in April of 2018. Here we are at, uh, at the front end of June, 2020, what type of uh, what type of healing has has been uh, injected into that journey um, in the last two years? Yeah, so I don't want to go too far into the life lesson portion, um, but 
one of the things that Joe and I always do, um, a couple of things that stand out, you know, right away. Um, one is every, every year at the same time, um, we go back to the same place and we sit there for a couple hours and just talk about it. So we just kind of made a deal with each other, um, that we're just going to always do that and, you know, talk about how we're doing now and, you know, how things have changed and this and that. And, um, I, I don't think it's any different than, you know, soldiers going back to like, you know, uh, battle of the bulge or something like that. They all serve there. You know, I think it's just, you have this bond that's forged, um, that nobody's going to understand. And no matter how much people want to understand it, they're not going to get it until they're there. And that's just, you know, you just share that between the two of you and just be thankful for it. Um, and then, like I said, like we've had the opportunity to give this, um, this whole, it's like a three hour presentation, two to three hours, uh, depending on questions and stuff like that. But we've given it to civilians and um, police academies and tactical teams and um, our own department and city council and, you know, all kinds of people that wouldn't otherwise have um, a portal into an experience like this. Yeah. Yeah, and we're definitely grateful for it to be added to that list. So thank you. Thank you for uh, for your willingness to dig into some some messy stuff with us. Yeah, happy to do it. Hmm. All right. Um, are you ready to transition into uh, into the life lesson segment? Yes, sir. Uh, John, if you had to try and form... Uh, a few thoughts around what you've taken from this and applied to life as you know it. Uh, what was the one overarching lesson that you learned from what took place in April of 2018? Yeah, there's like so many and it's hard to like pin it down to one, but I think we can go full circle on the whole thing and, and go right back to the outdoors and just what a healing uh, opportunity the outdoors um, has been for me and I think a lot of other people um, who wrestle with whatever they're wrestling with and as far as I'm concerned you know I don't want to elevate the outdoors to some kind of a godlike status I, I see it as more of a I see it as more of a gift from God rather than God you know just like hey here's here's something that you can go and just get your your head right and your heart right and your soul right um, this is my creation and enjoy it um that that just reaffirmed that i mean that's what i've thought all along and it this just only solidified that for me hmm. so did you have a special spot that uh you retreated to or do you have uh i mean you're you're an author of books on fly fishing i gotta believe that involved some waders and a fly rod yeah, especially considering the time of year. I mean, I've got a lot of special spots, certainly. Um, but, you know, um, in fly fishing, we all have what we would call our home water, um, something that's close enough that you can just jet out there, hopefully in less than an hour. Um, in my case, that is the case. Um, and so, yeah, I I went there, I fled there, um, and just spent some time by myself out there. And it's just, it's a spot that I know every... You know, every boulder, every bend, I know the trout by name in there. Some people would say, like, oh, that, that makes it boring. Don't you want to have some spontaneity? And um, guys like me who deal in the realm of um, 
variability and and not knowing exactly what to expect every day like um consistency like that and so when i can go there and say okay you know fred lives behind this rock and i know exactly what he wants to eat at this time of year i'm pretty happy about that um so yeah i went out there and i just you know as is my norm for something like that funny for a guy who likes to run but you know i smoke a pipe i just sat down on a rock and, and smoked a pipe and just you know watched the stream for a while and just kind of let the water just gurgle around my legs and um, just let my thoughts drift with the current. And, you know, at that time of year, you got the Hendrickson's hashing. It's pretty reliable. Um, that day, there there were Hendrickson's coming off the water, and um, in the life cycle of uh, the life um, cycle of the the uh, mayfly, you know, it's got a nymph that's been under a rock for a while. It swims to the surface. It shucks its skin. And eventually, if it doesn't get eaten by a trout, um, it'll fly off. And um, they're they're actually like you know just a really elegant looking insect, um, almost like a little fairy kind of a thing, you know. Yeah, bright so I'm white. Watching this, and I'm just loving it. Um, and I guess you know, as I was watching that, I was kind of just seeing the parallels um, for myself, just like you know, hey, life is good. Um, you can shed your skin. You can you can see some some revitalization. Wow! So that's where you go. You go to the the stream. Um, the stream has been a healing place for many, uh, and for, for I've even experienced that on my own. Man, I I know what you're saying. Where um, those those spaces can become gifts from the creator. Uh, and if you see it as such, it just makes those moments ever so much more special because uh, those can be intimate moments of worship as well. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pseudo baptism of sorts. And, um, you know, I don't know, it's probably a, it's a conglomeration of everything, but the sound, the feeling, um, certainly the sights, you mm. know, that time of year, you got, marsh marigolds popping up all over the place and um, things are just greening up and you know it's it's good like you're seeing regrowth you're seeing new life you're seeing all these things and it's just you're feeling it you're smelling it mm. that's beautiful man so your 10 year old son says daddy what did you, what do you learn from the outdoors break that down in a in a simple way <laughs> God has given us an amazing, amazing gift, and um, it's our it's our responsibility to not only um, preserve it and conserve it, but also to use it and enjoy it, and to get the most out of it that we possibly can. Yes, couldn't agree more. <laughs> um, I believe. In uh, in adventure deficit nomenclature, we call that take your medicine, baby. <laughs> I'll take that mes- medicine as many times as I can. Yeah, that's really, really cool. That's impactful. Do you have time for a few uh, lightning round type questions? Yes, go right ahead. Okay. Shoot. So these, <laughs> might, these might pendulum a bit back and forth. One that comes to mind is rather, um, rather timely. So... 
in a time where our country is uh, at a heightened sense of tension, um, a lot of that tension has to do with um, police interjecting. Um, and in a specific case of uh, George Floyd, uh, we're looking at what looked like, uh, and I mean, there there are different uh, there are different phrases and terms being used across the internet and across the country. Um, I'll use the term murder. That's the way I see it. Um, but um, but w- there there was no doubt. We all have video evidence of uh, of a African American man being um, unjustly killed by the hands of a police officer. Being um, somebody that I've spent uh, a, a few hours with at this point, I um, I really enjoy your company. I really have gotten to know um, a man who's, uh, who's a, a towering physical figure but also has a soft heart and has compassion for people. And um, I want you to explain to me how that hits you and uh, maybe speak to that a little bit. And then the second part of that question is, how does it change the way that you guys police? Does does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for the kind words. And uh, likewise, I've enjoyed talking to you. Um. You know, I think sadness is probably the best um, description that I could give for the overall state of things right now. You know, I'm sad for the families. I'm sad for the people who have been been wronged. Um, we need to do better as a country and as cops and as people in general. I mean, I think that the polarizing politics that we see is just disgusting. And I think we need to just come together rather than find ways to rip each other apart. And I think if we um, really, if we really just start seeing each other as people instead of Republicans and Democrats and you know whatever racial minority or majority that you're that you're a member of, and just see each other as people and start treating each other like we would want to be treated, um, we would do a lot better. Hmm. Um, I think we let ourselves get in the way of ourselves way too often, hmm. and it's just really unfortunate, you know and um, something like that you, you just can't take back um, but I would also just ask your listeners or anyone else to not um, lump all cops into one group because cops are just like everyone else it's a community of people and some people make bad decisions and some people make better decisions and some of the best people are prone to poor decisions at times um, and so you know, it's uh, it's a very unfortunate deal. Um, people have every re- reason to be angry about it and sad about it, um, but don't don't put all of us in the same group. Yeah, is that guy? Yeah, bad apples exist. Yeah, in everything. Yeah, you know, in everything. Yeah, so true. Um. Okay, in the in the second portion of that that hinges on that is is, I mean, how do you, how do you start up a shift after something like that? How does that change your day to day? You know, it's a it's a it's a hostile environment out there right now. Um, no matter who you are, uh, we definitely feel it. Um, it's a hard way to go to work. It's uh, 
you know, all that heightened awareness and 360 degree um, observation that you end up, it's, it's even amped up more. So, um, so I think it's just, yeah, you don't know what's coming at you. And a lot of people don't like cops right now. Um, it's unfortunate, it, you know, the guys that I know are doing the best job that they can. And if somebody wasn't doing the best job that they could, there's enough accountability there that we would call them out on it. Like, ASAP. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I know from uh, just, I mean, for what it's worth, I read through your bullet points uh, and I couldn't help but start getting uh, emotional. I got choked up on the, on, and I think it had to do with the fact that here's a guy who's sharing with me some of the, the depth of his heart regarding um, a moment that most of us would probably uh would probably handle in a in a pretty fragile way uh he's doing everything he can to ensure that he's not just taking care of his his mental health and the the country's in turmoil um the country doesn't know that he's got this really really intimately effective uh story that in which he had to play hero but he also had to wrestle with taking life and uh, the public is ready to say things like FTP. You know, um, there's there's rioting in downtown Grand Rapids right now, um, or at least as of as of this past weekend. Um, I'm sure there's conflicts that you have to de-escalate on a fairly regular basis where you're just largely misunderstood. And I think part of the reason why I started getting choked up is here's a guy who who still dons his dons his boots and straps a vest on and walks away from his family every morning and, and goes to work. Um, so it really made me admire uh, what you and your, your brothers do for us. So on behalf of, um, I can't speak for all my listeners, but uh, thank you. Thank you so much for what you guys do for us. Yeah, thanks for hearing me out. Yeah, man. Um, all right, so when you hit the stream, what uh, – what are you normally taking with you? Are you a dry fly guy or will you nymph as well? Uh, some of my favorite flies are wet flies, actually, like uh, soft tackles. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love swinging soft tackles. But, you know, if I could get them on dries every time, I would. But soft tackles the next, next best thing in my mind. Okay. Um, bamboo rods, um, almost exclusively, um, just because I like them. Soft, slow action. Yep, yep. Uh, heavier you know i mean yeah all those things but the feels there you know there's some life to it um usually antique reels i'm kind of a fan of the old orvis cfos um got some reels from the 40s i got an old ocean city that's nothing fancy but it's like i love that reel i mean it was made in i don't know what it was 52 or something like that and um it's just yeah it's it's a great reel you know um what else wax cotton and wool um, much more so than nylon um, or technical fabrics. Um, what else? Flies I tied myself, rods that my buddies have made for me. Um, you're cut, you're uh, cut from 100 years ago, man. You are like a kitchen sink. So you're a cop who plays with all kinds of high-techy equipment and will bum-rush a bad guy with your SWAT team. You're also a soft-hearted, empathetic who enjoys writing and uh you're kind of an old-timey connoisseur of things of a, of a past era 
that's what you get when you take two hippies and put them together and like you know <laughs> you just never know what's going to come out of that that is a big walking question mark man <laughs> yeah no i mean it, it is a, i i totally recognize the um the, the irony and all of it i really do that's great i love it i have i share an appreciation for certain things you know like uh hops number nine i love the smell of i love the smell of bore cleaner and gun oil it reminds me of my grandpa i love stormy cromer i know uh you know, some of the merits of old-timey wool have been outdone by new technical fabrics, but I just kind of like like the nostalgia. I get it. Yeah. You know, I still yeah. wear... I had a friend whose sister hooked us up with... Uh, she was a traveling uh, rep, and she hooked us up when we were in college with, with what we thought was just the cat's meow gear, and she had uh, Filson tin cloth jackets for us. Mm-hmm. And I still wear that thing. Yeah, man, I still oil it and take good care of it. But uh, I get it. I understand. Um, There's just something. If you could could smell the office I'm sitting in right now, it smells like equal parts pipe tobacco, hops number nine, uh, musty wool. um, (laughs) Yes. What else? Wax cotton, because you know that has its own smell. That smells like every Um, campfire it's ever been near. Totally. Totally. That and that, whatever that oil treatment is, has its own smell to it, but it does take on, you know, chainsaw, um, chainsaw exhaust, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So do you use, uh, are you using a four weight or a three weight? What, what type of bamboo, uh, rod are you using? I have a four, five, six, and six, seven. Oh yeah. Um, you got to go a little beefier with that slow action, right? Yeah, not necessarily. Um, you just it's the casting stroke differs. Um, but my dry fly rod on that spot that I ran to after that whole deal in April was a four weight. Um, that's what I use like in a, a small stream like that. The the six seven is one that I use more for like hex. Um, you're expecting to tie into a big fish, and you're also casting a bigger fly. Yeah. Um, so yeah it's more the the bamboo can handle it i mean i've I've gotten some really nice fishing on that four weight it's just you got to be a little bit um just not rush it you know all right final question um tell us a little bit about where we can find your stuff uh so i had already mentioned those two books and the titles again are fly fisher's guide to michigan and classic michigan flies 16 legendary patterns where can i tell my listeners to go to find those yeah, I would just uh, encourage them to email me directly. Um, and I think you said you're going to post the email at the bottom, but I'd uh, be happy to, to um, you know, customize this uh, signature and a message in there and um, just mail it to you like that. That would be probably the best way to do it. That'd be really cool. So I will make yeah. sure I include uh, a way to contact John in my show notes. Uh, just take a look at my show notes and I'll put uh, John's info at the bottom. If you do want a copy of either of those books, go ahead and reach out. And uh, he's just agreed to do a personal signing. So that's pretty cool. Thanks, John. For sure. Thank you. All right. Well, that's a wrap, man. I have really appreciated our time together. I really appreciated all the the work that you've put in, and uh, it's been a pleasure. I have a feeling uh, this won't be the last time I see you, and uh, I'm really looking forward to next time. Yeah, you too, Drew. Thanks a lot. Awesome, man. Thanks.